Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is episode number 98, Writing to Effect Change. It's a little different than most episodes because I want to talk about writing in the sense of someone doing a, a, a letter or a pamphlet or an essay or something because they're purposely trying to affect change in the society, in the world, and their environment. And they're not necessarily writers. I mean, some are, but most actually are not. They wind up being very good writers because of their, the passion and their education, but they're not literary writers the writers that are literally want to get something across to people, hoping that it's going to change their minds, therefore joining with them in order to change the world, change society, change a church. There'll be a number of examples over here. But I thought it'd be interesting to talk about writing from that aspect. And I have a few of my own personal examples of what I've done something like this as well, apart from being a writer, trying to use writing to affect some sort of a change. I, I really like that. I really like the... Uh, the title and I like that. I like the subject. I think it'll be very interesting to do on this show. Uh, but a few days away from Christmas, I'm a little bit late here. Sorry, folks. Kind of been under the weather. Uh, my voice is back to almost normal, so I thought it'd be great to get this show back on the road. So thank you for bearing with me. All right, let's talk about this. I want to talk about some of the the more um, more established examples, or even the more. I guess you could say historic examples of, of this actually working where somebody wrote something specifically because they want to affect change. And oftentimes when they did this, folks, they did this either at the extremes of their life, meaning that they knew they could be executed for it, or you know they did it with the understanding that either they were in jail and it wasn't going to help them get out of jail, or it was going to put them in jail. So um, that's really when you know you're committed to something, when you really go that far. But it also probably propels the writing and gives it more, not, not only of a, of a flavor, but of a, of, a, of a life of its own. All right, well, so let's go down here. What, one, of the, one of the earliest examples uh, of, of what I'm talking about here was, was Martin Luther. And I mean Martin Luther, the professor and the theologian, okay? Uh, he started the Reformation, which was the split from the Catholic Church to become a Protestant um, uh, line of, of churches. And he did so mainly because he objected to a number of, of Catholic practices, the main one in his, in his uh, gigantic letter, by the way, uh, was that he thought they were selling some of the confessions and, and some of the punishments and what he called indulgences to the church for them to gain money and then you get some forgiveness of sins. So he felt he felt that that was not only um, unbiblical practice, but not necessarily the way uh, Christ thought you should be able to handle sin, because he thought that maybe you should be repenting and turning away from it, not you know dropping some money in a bucket someplace, go back and do it again and drop money again, which is ultimately what was happening in the Catholic Church at that time. So he felt that that practice was ultimately uh, unchristian. 
So uh, Martin Luther King, a, a great um, perils to his own life, he tacked on the church door what he called the 99 Thesis. And basically they were like nine lines paragraphs of, of all the various things he disagreed with the church on, which uh, 99, that's a lot. So it, I think it went beyond just the indulges. He had a lot of other issues. Of course, he was immediately excommunicated. He was uh, literally hunted down for his life. He had to leave. And ultimately, not only did he start the Reformation, but Martin Luther did something a lot more important than just starting a separate church from the Catholic Church. He translated the, the Bible from Latin into German, which ultimately helped other, other lands and other languages translate into their own languages. That allowed the Bible to become a lot more read because one of the big problems with the Catholic Church back then was is that everything was in Latin. Latin was still a pretty obscure language. Only the most educated knew it. And imagine having a holy book in a language that you couldn't even read. You go into a, 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 a church service in Latin, you barely understood half the things they were talking about, other than some of the basics. So that was also one of his uh, real grievances there, was that, hey, you know, this was supposed to be a book from God, and what, only godly people can read it? Nobody else can read it? That makes no sense. So in that sense, uh, on, on both a writing level and, and probably on a social level, he made a, he made a massive change throughout the church, throughout the world. Uh, when we talk about these writings and we're talking about these effects and changes, I'm not always going to talk too much about the people because that doesn't mean they're perfect people. It doesn't mean he didn't have issues of his own. But nevertheless, they did make a major impact because they specifically said, I'm going to write something. And I wanted to make some change, and that's exactly what Martin Luther did. Now, the next one, interestingly enough, is uh, Thomas Paine. If you know anything about him, he's from the American Revolution, and he wrote a pamphlet called Common Sense. He got that thing uh, published, and he got it spread around to help to convince people that they should want to leave Great Britain and become an independent uh, you know, country of their own. And he was able to, to use that pamphlet in a convincing manner to gain more people to the revolution. And he's credited with doing so by making a pamphlet that was easier for people to read into excess and also for something that, funny enough, did make common sense. He made a very plain and, and, and compelling argument. Nothing, nothing too sophisticated, nothing too grand. Just made reasons. Uh, of course, a lot of them had to do with... Uh, the the funny rhyme of, you know, no taxation without representation sounds like a cool rhyme, but it, it's really the heart of the American Revolution and really uh, the main thrust of, of his pamphlet because it makes no sense at all to be taxed to death by a country far away and you don't really have a saying what goes on and they take your money on top of that. And then they leave a garrison of army people. You don't like it, they shoot you in the head. Or, of course, you know, they run into your house and, you know, violate your privacy and beat you up and, and drag you to jail. Even if they don't have any charges, just on some suspicion. So you could see on, on those very things how the American government and justice system was founded on. Because it made sure that those things were never going to happen again. Because they're, you know, of course, unjustified and people who want to be free. But also, you, you, you can't really operate... A government, or you can't really even, you know, rule a people. And I don't mean it like a king ruling. I mean, just as a democratic government, you can't rule people in any kind of unfair manner because who's going to want that? 
So it made sense. And uh, so he's another one right there, Thomas Paine. Not the traditionally the writer you would think about. He's more of a, uh, I guess you could say, a social activist or, or, or somebody definitely that would be, um, you know, what they used to call back then a pamphleteer, although I just think the term is corny. You know, what do you do, man? I'm a pamphleteer. Come on. That's, that's a little too much. But um, I, would, I would say that he was a social activist, and I would say that his writing definitely helped spark that revolution and, and kept it going. So he's a huge figure in history and, and, and a huge writer in that sense of writing to affect the change. Here's a great example right there. Next one was Martin Luther King Jr. Ironically, um, changed his name from Michael Luther King Jr. to Martin Luther King because he has so admired Martin Luther and many of his um, theological concepts on, on Protestantism. And of course, uh, Martin Luther uh, King uh, was very much an anti-slavery kind of individual. So I can understand some of the uh, ideas that Martin Luther King wanted to take from him and, and of course, expound upon. Um, he went, later went to jail for the, for the boycott and, and he wrote a, le a letter called Letter from Selma which outlined how the boycott was necessary. It was a natural outgrowth of people, again, in many ways, being taxed without being represented because if you think about it, you're paying the bus line to bring you someplace. you got to sit in the back like some kind of animal. You can't talk because, God forbid, you're black. You're not allowed to have an opinion, and you can't vote. But you're, you're, you're earning a living, and you're allowing the system to continue by it being subsidized by your work. I mean, it's almost, you know, next to slavery. So it's not a hard thing for him to understand about how you want to break free from that and, and get the full rights that you should have been had in the first place. So he wrote that letter. It made some very compelling and, and really basic arguments about this makes no sense. Why are we going to continue to live this way? We shouldn't feed this anymore. If we got to walk to work, we've got to walk to work. If we got to get beaten by police, well, I guess we're going to get beaten by police. But we're not going to strike back and we're going to shut this system down until it starts changing. That's what his letter was about. That's what he was trying to tell uh, African Americans back then, who I think they called themselves Negroes back then before. African Americans was used, I think, in the, the mid '80s or early '90s, but this is the 1960s, and that's what they call themselves. I'm, I'm just happy with Black Americans. That makes the most sense, uh, for this particular context. And um, he made an extremely compelling argument. And Martin Luther King, unlike many of the other people we just talked about, he had a real flair for writing. So I, I, I tell you, if you read a lot of his works, and I have his entire life's works in my library, and I read them a few times over. Uh, he's an extremely good writer. I think part of it is the cadence of uh, the gospel being in the South. Another part of it, of course, is really helps that he has a PhD, so he's a very advanced, educated man. When they call him a doctor, that wasn't a, a, just a term of endearment. He really had a PhD, okay? And um, he, he really had a, a, a real metaphoric and, and just, uh, I feel, a, a poetic style to his writing that really made him more than just a a gospel writer or more than just a preacher or more than just a social activist, which, you know, he also was, you know, it made, it made him in my eyes, a real writer, even in the literary sense, because some of his stuff was heartbreaking. Some of it was beautiful, you know, but it was always on the, always on the money in terms of where we was at. And that's what I always liked about him. Um, especially, um, his consistency. I'm always a big fan of consistency, but I was a big fan of consistency of Martin Luther King because it wouldn't have been hard for him 
to change the stance on the Vietnam War and say, yeah, it's okay to do that because, you know, the President Johnson backed me to help me get the Civil Rights Act going, so I'm going to help him with that, which is what the President actually was expecting. But he was like, no, the war is dumb. We shouldn't be in the war. Uh, again, what's the point of freeing black people? In the end, they got to go to a war and get killed. So this doesn't make any sense. So he was consistent on that where other people wasn't. So it's, I always find him very interesting and, and theologically interesting, but also I think politically and literary well, he's also very, very compelling as well because his arguments, they always made to me logical sense, it's not just political sense or or, or um, moral sense or even biblical sense. You know, he, he made a lot of logical sense about what he had to say. It just, it, to me... That's what made him such a, a great thinker and a great writer and a great speaker. And as you know, of course, we, we lost him to, uh, to an assassination. Martin Luther King Jr., folks. All right, the next one, and this is a really interesting one, uh, especially since I have a connection to this. Um, in 1989, I certainly wasn't a, a steady head. It was now. I was more of an angry person. I was in the military. Definitely uh, can be a bit violent. And I was very upset that uh, a communist regime you know, could literally imprison a man for a play. And I'm a writer, of course, in, in 1989. And, and I was in a writer when, when, when he was in prison as well. And uh, I, I thought it was ridiculous. You know, really? Your whole regime can fall apart? You could be disfrightened because a guy wrote a play? You just can't say, the guy's a jerk, don't see his play, have a good day, and go have a sandwich. No. You got to put him in prison and ban his play. That right there, folks, tells you there's something wrong. Not necessarily something wrong with the play, but something wrong with a regime that does that. If you'd be that frightened over some some writing, um, you need to look at that writing and you need to look at that regime because obviously there's a serious problem there. Um, Vaclav Havel went to jail. Um, I nearly went to jail because I went to the Frankfurt Book Fair in 1989 and literally punched out the the communist Czechoslovakian press when I had some questions for him and he, he just literally grabbed me and I'm like, <laughs> I punched him right in his face. Yeah, don't, don't grab me. Not a good idea. Of course, he never answered my questions because he couldn't answer my questions. How the hell can you be here with a press when you don't have a free society and you lock up a Vaclav Havel because he wrote a play? This is just propaganda. This is garbage. You know, I told him I was going to wipe my butt with his, with his book after I ripped it in from the front of his face. I didn't get a chance to do that, but I got a chance to punch him in his face. Thankfully, a cop pulled me away and didn't arrest me. He knew I was military, for, I guess, for my haircut. Because I wasn't wearing a uniform. I was a civilian at that moment anyway. But he told me how much he didn't like the communists either and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't know how to take that since uh, German police don't exactly have the best history in the last 50 or 60 years, okay? But uh, I was happy not to go to jail. Now, he wrote an essay, Václav Havel, called The Power of the Powerless. It was one of those essays... Not only was logical about how stupid the communism is in general, but how extra stupid communism was in Czechoslovakia, but it was used uh, throughout the area of, of the Eastern Bloc at that time, a huge part of Poland and their resistance against communism. Um, it was put in what the what the Russians had, had termed, because you know they had these in their society as well too, called the Samzadat. And, and that's like, uh, it's a Russian expression. It really means like a mini booklet, Basically, the American version of a champ, uh, of a chapbook. You could even call it a pamphlet to a certain extent. Although a pamphlet is usually supposed to be something long and vertical. And then you read it almost like an advertisement. You know, where a Samson that really is like a mini book, like a chapbook. But 
that's how we got it put. It was um, published under Underground, and it was all over the place. Very famous essay. Any of his writings you ever read of his, including his plays, they always included in there because it's just one of those you got you got to know it, you got to read it. It's incredible. And not only was I influenced by it in terms of my own social writing and, and, and my own social thinking about you know the ridiculousness of, of centralization of anything, any centralized government. Is dangerous to free free people. I don't care what you want to call it, socialist, communist, fascist, whatever, whatever the hell you want to call it. It's always dangerous. It's always wrong. He understood that. He made it very clear in that essay. Huge influence on myself and, and you know throughout the world. A lot of people owe him a, a, a great debt of, of gratitude. Of course, he was actually a writer, not just a, a social activist, and, and a hell of a playwright. Later on, he became the first. Uh, president of a free Czechoslovakia and then after that he became the first president of a Czechoslovakia what they called the Czech Republic he actually allowed the Slovakians to conform their own government separate from Czechoslovakia because Czechoslovakia was was really a melding of by communists of two different nations who spoke two different languages had two different cultures the only reason they killed each other is because the communists were there in charge but he was able to make a separation in, in a peaceful manner without any violence, without any stupidity, and they've been working with each other side by side ever since. So again, he goes the man who's a great writer. He winds up becoming a great president and a great statesman and does a lot of wonderful things for the world. And we didn't have to have another war. You know, we, we actually had something that made sense. You know, unlike um, India and Pakistan, that separated and they had three wars. You know, and and they're still fighting over a piece of land to this day. So, as you can see, that didn't work out too well on that separation. Maybe one day, not right now. Uh, but he was able to separate those two countries. Uh, and and I, I only can do is, is praise a man that can do something like that. Really shows you his commitment to not only uh, the literary pursuits, but also uh, the humanity that they can affect. There you go, writer affecting the change right there. Havel. Now we could go on with many other people. Some people like like Charles Dickens purposely wrote uh, novels to have a social effect, but he didn't have them in a in a small sort of fashion like many of these have done. It's not like a letter or something like that. So you'll see some social writers that have done that. We've talked about those in, in the past, so we won't have to include those. But we can include, and this is what I urge you all to be considering, okay, is to write letters to change, to change maybe your local um, homeowners association, your local government, maybe a, a utility um, authority, you don't like the, what they're doing, something, or maybe you want to start some recycling when there isn't any. Or you're writing a company or, or a store or even a franchise or a restaurant about something you're not happy about, or maybe something you have an idea that they can improve on, or maybe even something you are happy about. It's always good to hear something happy once in a while as well. So when you're writing to affect the change, folks, it's not like you have to, you know, be with like those last four persons we talked about, people that literally have changed the world. You don't have to have that burden on you. And this is why sometimes people don't write in this manner because they're like, oh, my God, how can I be like Martin Luther King? Well, you can't. So don't worry about that. How do I do this like Thomas Paine? Uh, you can't do that either. OK, but you can make changes and you can do things. Uh, some great examples I'll give you is this. 
I knew, I knew a guy that he had a problem with the uh, the trash authority. That's what I guess everybody in different communities have a different name for it. So what's this called, trash authority? I think everybody who speaks English on the show will understand what I'm talking about. It's always a different name in different communities, okay? I'm sure probably a different name in different countries too. But we all know what trash is, all right? He didn't like the way they were picking up the trash. He thought that uh, stuff was strewn all over the neighborhood. So therefore, instead of beautifying things, they were kind of making it a bit worse. You know, he liked the idea uh, of maybe having uh, more of a recycling plan and possibly using the proceeds for that to pay for the trash removal. So therefore, the bills can be lowered because, you know, trash removal in most communities uh, are not free. And uh, like mine and others, it, it's melded into your water bill. So you're, you're paying a water bill that also includes the trash fee. And believe me, at times I'm like, what am I paying this for? Because I've had that issue myself. And I, But I didn't write him. I just called him and say, you need to do something over here before I start getting upset. I don't want to be having this garbage. You don't make me go to the city council and say what the hell you're doing. Because I'm not paying this money for you to, to leave stuff or forget stuff or, you know. We still don't have recycling in my community, but we're working on it, okay? Not because it's the greatest thing on earth, okay? Because it's not. It's one thing of many things. You know, you might want to try to do more responsible, but it's a good way to generate income rather than people being taxed to death because no one wants to be imaginative or creative over there, you know, in your city hall. You got to get them to do that or they won't. Why would they? That's what you're supposed to have a voice for. And that's why these letters are so important. Now, I know trash doesn't sound like it's important, but it gets important real quickly when things don't go right. Believe me, you won't be happy when you drive in your neighborhood and stuff flying all over the place. I'm like, what the heck? So he did that, and they did make some changes that were beneficial. All right, I've known some people that they were not happy the way their animals or even the way they were treated at their vet. And they're like, listen, you're not the only vet in town. If you're not going to handle this right, I'm going to go somewhere else. Now, just like Martin Luther King, understanding that the economic pressure can change things, you know, so can your letter as well. You can tell them that in that letter. This is what you need to improve or I'm going to someplace else, even if it costs more money because I, I find this unacceptable. And one of the things they were talking about, and this is starting to decline now because people are more, more, more sensitive about it, is you go to these places and vets are one of these places where they feel that they're not going to see you for maybe another year. So they try to like load everything under the sun. When they get you out of there, they're trying to get the biggest bill out of you possible. It's almost like they train the staff to do that. And I, I say, listen, you have every right as a business. And that's what a veterinarian is. Okay? We could talk about Lassie and loving animals and, you know, the spirit beings from God. That's all beautiful and everything. But in the end, just like your doctor, it's a business. And you start looking at it any other way you're going to start losing perspective on things, all right? You won't be a good consumer. You're not going to get the best care. You're certainly not going to get the best bang for your dollar, and you should. Now, I know this might sound a little weird to Canadians who might not have the same situation. Forgive me. I'm talking about many of us who don't have that situation, and we have to watch our money, and we have to watch our doctors. That's just the truth. So what they'll do, and I don't care if businesses do this. I'm okay with this. You can suggest any damn thing you want. Okay, you can tell me all the things you think I need. In the end, I'm the person with the money. I'm going to make a decision on that. What they were doing to a lot of the people was they were literally 
bring him in for a couple shots, throw a couple other shots in there, do a test or two, and then like, yeah, here's a $200 bill. And you, you thought you were going there for $50. And like, well, you really, really did all this. And it's like, really? Why'd you do that for? I didn't give you consent. Like anything, folks, it's a business. If they don't get your consent, they're not getting my money. They literally tried that with me already on one of the vets. Not only did I not pay them, I dumped them and said, you can call the cops, but I'm going to give you the money of what I told you I wanted you to do. Period. You're not getting anything else. Too bad you gave them another shot. Oh, well, have a good day. And I reported them as well. Not only to the Better's Beauty's Bureau, but I reported them to the state. Because it's an unacceptable practice. That's really starting to decline now. Not just me, for me, but other people as well. Because they, they wrote letters, they complained. It's just really unacceptable. It really is. Doctor's offices, they're a little less, a regular doctor's office, a little less willing to do that. Because they understand that people have insurance or they have to pay or a combination of both. So they want to make sure that, you know, because unlike a vet, they, you know, they really think that, you know, if they do something dumb, you're really not going to pay them. And they know they don't want that. Veterinarian, they think they're going to pull, you know, a heartstring or try to pretend, oh, I didn't realize this, you know. But they, again, they, they know you're not going to come that often. But regular doctor, they figure they're going to see you, I don't know, two, three, four times a year. If you got kids, even more than that. So I don't know if that makes them more honest or what, but that's how that sort of thing works. So those kind of letters, whether it's to a medical board, an examining board, a, a legal authority, the newspaper, whatever, it has an impact. People don't want their names out there. They don't want to give any impression, that, oh my God, I bring my animal over there. They're going to triple charge me. Yeah, well, that's what happens. So you got to be careful. Letters can affect that kind of change. I know it doesn't sound like the change of the social change that, you know, people free from the shackles of slavery or something, but it's still important change because you have to guard your insurance, you have to guard your money, and quite frankly, you have to guard your integrity, and in many instances, your judgment. As far as I'm concerned, if you get taken advantage once, that's not great, but who can really question your judgment on that? Well, you know, if it happens again, you go back to the same the same people doing that, you, know, you deserve to have your, your judgment questioned because... That should be a remedy already. I don't play those sort of games. And I don't encourage anyone else to do so either. Now, I've had a few. Uh, I wrote um, I wrote a letter to the CIA asking them to help uh, fund the uh, Kurdish English Dictionary. I thought because of some of the crap they did with the Kurds. And if you know anything recently, apparently that hasn't changed. So I'm embarrassed to say my government probably for the last 50, 60 years... Hasn't really done anything but use those poor people and, and then seem abandoned on whenever it's convenient. Whether we're going to get it right again one day, I don't know. Maybe there'll be a Kurdish state by then and, you know, they can figure out if they want to deal with us or not. But we're, we're definitely not the most reliable partners in that sort of thing. But I wrote a letter about that, wanting them to fund them, thinking that it's a worthy project. I, I wrote a letter to the Turkish government regarding... Um, uh, Armenia and the Holocaust and, and how they shouldn't be objecting to a holiday. Uh, I did that actually over 20 years ago, by the way. It's becoming more more, more popular now. And of course, we, we finally published and, um, uh, excuse me, we finally pushed something through legislation in the United States uh, Congress. Ironically, probably the only thing worthy they've done this year in 2019 was uh, declaring the, the Armenian Holocaust as uh, something that, was, that truly happened factually historically, and, and 
blamed it on the on the on the, on the Turkish uh, government. Period, and, and how they should be doing something about that. And and I'm I'm glad they did that. Many of us who are not Armenians, and who don't hate Turks, just think it's the fair and the right thing to do. Uh, wrote letters, and uh, I'm one of those people. But I've been doing that for quite some time. I actually got a reply back from the Turkish embassy on the one I did. Uh, when was that? In uh, I think it was 1980, um, 1988, actually. And yeah, they pretty much told me to go to hell. But that's that's too bad. I met one later on at, 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 at a political function, and you know he thought, he thought he was being a smart aleck, but uh, I wasn't too impressed with them. I'm still not very uh, impressed with them. They're very. Uh, I always felt mixed up government. Don't really do right by their people. Don't even understand how to operate a democratic government. And on top of that, you know, um, suppress a, a minority uh, community to Kurds to the point of killing them. And then um, don't seem to want to remember that they killed over a million Armenians to help form their own Turkish government and pretend like it never existed. So, folks, you got a lot to, a lot to deal with over there. Hopefully one day you'll, you'll have a government that will be willing to do that because you have a world that wants to see that happen. You also have a world, and this is why it's so ironic, you have a world that'd be willing to help you fix that if you just admit it and try to do something about it. You don't have to be some rogue agents out there. You don't have to be the idiots of the planet. You can come back because Turkish culture, I've lived there before. I, I, I love living there. They're very interesting people. I love being in the bazaars. I don't they have a hell of a sense of humor. Turkish rugs are beautiful. I, I really found them to be, in many instances, a, a very friendly people. And a very tough people. I just hope one day that, you know, they finally get a government that's going to help them move them in the right direction historically. Because until they go there, you know, they're, they're never going to be the greatest nation that they want to be. They're always going to have those those issues. So hopefully for the for the best for them. But I know people still pray for them. Even the people that they persecute, and we continue to, you know, to hound them with their own letters about trying to do the right thing. So that's a perfect example right there of some bigger social change. I've been a, a part of that for a couple of decades now, and I, I continue to do so until I die, because it's it's a major issue for me, especially regarding the Kurds, who deserve uh, our support. Of course, there is a faction of them that are doing terrorist activities. I'm not talking about those folks. Just the ones that are, that are that are trying to form their own state and, and live a peaceful life, and which is the great majority of them. Now, I've done a few uh, commercial things with writing. One, you might find amusing, but it's completely true. Okay? One day, I was talking to my uh, friends, and I had said, it was just, I think we were having a few drinks with this joking around. But I, I said, you know, I read this 1700 flushes on this box. And this is that blue tidy bowl thing. You put it in your toilet bowl. And it says that it will stay blue in the water for 1700 flushes before it will go away. Now, to me, that's a lot of flushes. Because if you think about it, you do the math. I mean, even with two people in your household, I mean, you're probably not flushing the toilet bowl any more than maybe 10 times a day. You know, at the most, okay? I don't care if you're a girl or a boy. That's about the average, all right? So I'm saying, well, shit, that, that's, that's got to be months and months. I mean, really? It just, it just seemed like it, it wasn't true. So I said, listen, why don't we try to experiment with this just for the fun of it? 
We're probably wrong, but you know, they should know better, right? But let's do that. So I put together, okay, a little pad of paper that I cut into little squares, all right, and I stapled it to a, to a piece of wood on on the wall there that I hung up, all right. Every time after we put that new tidy bowl thing in, every time somebody flushed it, I said take a number out, okay. Now. I had this to 1,700 pieces of paper. I mean, that's how nuts I was trying to do this. So everybody was pulling it and pulling it and pulling it. You know, the next thing you know, I get a call. Now, this is in the early 90s, so we didn't even have cell phones back then. Everything was a beeper. But I got a call because I was at work. I was working for the city at the time. And I got a call from my, uh, from my brother. And he's like, hey, you know, this thing... It died before 1,700 flash, uh, flushes. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, 1,586, man. I'm like, what? He goes, yep, after 1,586 flushes, that thing was no longer blue. It went to almost regular water. I'm like, oh, man. I'm like, this is messed up. So I'm like, I'm looking at the box. I call the phone number up. They go, well, we'd like you to put that in writing. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I wrote them a letter about my entire experiment and how this was a bunch of baloney. And I feel that they should give my money back. Right? They actually sent me. Probably the equivalent of a year's worth of that. In a big box. Okay? With a letter apologizing. Saying that they're going to change the labeling. Because. What they really meant. Hmm. What they meant. I like, I like that. When a company says. Well this is what we meant. But what the letter told me is that what we meant was. Up to 1,700 flashes, uh, flushes, depending on your tank size. Now, if you guys had said that in the first place, well, I wouldn't have any grounds to be getting like free stuff and getting mad and sending you a letter. Because I agree with that statement and how they marketed it afterwards. Because you're right. I don't know if it's, it's really well known or not. Mainly because who the hell is thinking about toilet bowls in America, okay? I don't care where you're from. You're like, that's not on your mind. But they are right. Toilet bowls in America can vary in different sizes and different uh, water capacities. Some ones are, are outfitted to use less water so they can have a smaller water bill. Others don't really care, especially if it's an apartment complex or something like that. They're not worrying about it as well. They're getting a, a better brick on the water anyway versus the individual household. And of course, they are right about the fact that because of that, that can make a real difference. So, I, I, I'm going to try to take them at their word about that because it doesn't. It didn't seem to me at 1,586 flushes that they were really lying. If I looked at their uh, their logic to that, that would make sense. But you know, they're still responsible for marketing things, and ultimately, it's false marketing. Not in the, in the, in the, you know in the, in the sense of they're trying to rob me, but just in the sense that. You know, you're telling me something inaccurate and I'm basing it, my purchase on that. So, you know, therefore you need to do something. They fixed it. They took care of it. That was great. I had another example. And I'm not saying go out and run out and do this as well. But this is what I did. Okay. I bought a carton of cigarettes because up until, uh, let me see, 15, almost, yeah, it's 15 and a half years. Almost, almost 16 years ago, I was a smoker. I quit Almost 16 years ago. April of 2020 will be 16 years that I quit smoking. All right. So 
I got I got this carton of cigarettes, okay, and I didn't buy it from the cigarette store or I didn't even buy it from the supermarket, which sometimes had better prices, you know, sometimes they had sales. I just bought it from like a, a corner grocery store. I was tired. I'm getting off of work. I'm out of cigarettes. and don't feel like standing in line behind, you know, two senior citizens and some dude with an avocado just so I can get some damn cigarettes. So I bought it from a corner store. I go home. I smoke. I, I open up a pack. I smoke the cigarettes. I'm like, oh, my God, what was this? The whole damn pack is stale. I mean, it's bad enough I'm inheriting all these deadly chemicals, which, by the way, after 22 years of smoking, you never know I've quit almost 16 years. It doesn't mean I'm out of the woods. I got an x-ray. Everything looks good. It looks like it's starting to repair itself. They, they say it repairs itself after about 10 years. So, you know, I feel that my odds, you know, of getting lung cancer or things like that are pretty low, but it doesn't matter. I put so many years of that stuff in me. It could still happen. I'm happy to quit. Don't get me wrong. I don't regret you know, but it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm out of the woods. I'm just hoping, you know, at 54 and going beyond that, you know, I, I, got, I got away from that and don't have to suffer the consequences. But if I do, I do because, you know, I did it and um, that's the way things work. You just can't run away from some of those things. You know, I'm just hoping I, I stopped it in time. But I literally, I mean, I was like, phew, I was more upset than, than the flushes, I tell you that. Because, you know, cigarettes are not cheap. They weren't cheap then. They're certainly not cheap now. And I'm so glad I quit because, wow, they're expensive now. Um, I called them up and they said the same thing. But on top of the letter, they said, we're going to send you a box. And they sent me a box so I can mail it back to them. They wanted every damn thing back. All the cigarettes, the pack. They wanted even the cigarette that I was still smoking. Put it out, cut it in half, throw it in there, and we'll mail everything back to us. We'll pay for it. Well, apparently they must have uh, figured out there was something wrong with that lot or something because they corrected it. They sent me back three cartons of cigarettes, which I'm telling you back then was nearly like $100 worth of stuff with a, with a, with a country of coupons and stuff like that. So I got that, and that was cool. I had at least two instances where I had some Coke bottles, and I was really upset that inside the Coke bottle I was doing this contest, and... For some reason, they marketed that people would honor the contest. But I went to certain stores that wouldn't honor the contest. So I was upset about that because I'm like, I need a free pack of soda over here because that's what I won. You know, I'm like, what the heck is this about? There's no, like now, you'll see on coupons, you'll you'll notice this in the franchise restaurants. You might have a, a $3 coupon off a meal. But it'll say on the coupon in small print, this is a national coupon, meaning that the individual local franchises, they do not have to honor this if they don't want to. So at times, you'll have people do that. I've told one of my local franchises, the day you stop honoring the coupon, that's the day I don't come back to you. And I'm not one of those people that have an idle threat. I won't come back. I seen the owner one time of one of those places. He saw me in the store one day in the supermarket. Hey, you haven't been around. I said, I told your ass. You don't honor the coupon that your company put out? I'm not coming back to your franchise. There are others I can go to that will honor coupons. Hell, there's others I can go to in your same franchise that'll honor it. But you're not going to play me for a fool. Talking about I need more money or this, that. I don't care. That's your business. You figure it the hell out. 
Okay? I, I mean, there's plenty of things that people can do to, to still honor the coupon. Hell, they could even be creative. They could say, listen, you know, we think that we think it's too generous. We're only going to do it for a dollar. We'll only do it for 50 cents. Or you could do what some of the other sneaky ones have done. They raise the damn product temporarily. Just way when you use the coupon, they're still getting similar to the profit they did before. Now, it's underhanded, and I don't recommend that. But I've seen people do that, too. But I don't play those games. But during that Coke contest, I don't mind mentioning the brand because it's not like a huge embarrassment to them. Something. They didn't mention that in the writing. So I talked to them. I read them. I said, listen, I want you to honor all these caps because I'm not getting anything. I'm tired of going to stores. Stores don't even understand half of your damn contest. Most of them don't even want to honor it. This isn't good because I'm buying it from these stores. So you need to honor it then. They sent me a couple of their own type of neutral coupons where you can go to a store and use them and buy a, a bunch of things for free with the coupons. That worked out fine. I actually did really well on that. So I can't complain on that. But you should, especially when you're dealing with a large restaurant chain, uh, a major franchise, large stores, I don't care what they are, sporting goods, shopping centers, whatever. These people... They have certain expectations they should be meeting. And if they don't, well, it's not enough just to walk away and not go there anymore. That has an impact, but you should let them know. You might want to give them a chance to fix something. You might want to give them a chance to give you some justice for a change, you know, on a financial basis. Or maybe you might even help them improve the whole situation so you go into a place. I went to a supermarket one time. And this is a this is an instance where I didn't write the letter. They actually wrote me a letter. I just verbally told them. I said, listen, first of all, I don't care if you're a supermarket or not. If you have a deli and it's lunchtime, you should be ready to have sandwiches made. I shouldn't have to wait there 20 minutes because you don't have the bread ready. You don't have the meat ready. Oh, I didn't cut this. I didn't do that. You got three, four hours since the store opened to get ready. Get ready. Don't make me wait. First. Second, this is what I was really upset. I said, listen, I find it unethical that you're pushing the more expensive meat, but then your store brand meat, you're not, men you're not mentioning much about it, which is actually cheaper. Therefore, that would make the sandwich cheaper. I go, I should have an option. You shouldn't be pushing this stuff, giving me the higher price, and then I find out later on, just by accident, because they didn't tell me anything, that if I ask for the store brand meat, I still get the same sandwich at, at, at like $2 difference. I don't know about you folks, but if you're buying a, you know, a packaged meal, $2, that'll take care of your chips and your drink. Meanwhile, I'm paying $2 extra for what? No. You're slow, you're making me wait, and then you're being unethical. So I literally told the manager all of that. He wrote me a letter saying he's going to change it, and eventually they did do so. After about a couple of weeks, I had somebody come in there, and they did a, a little inspection of it all, and now they, whenever you go there for a sandwich, they tell you, you can have this, you know, name brand meat or you can have the store brand meat. And here's the difference on the price. Now, when it's lunchtime, they have the bread ready to go to make the sandwiches. Don't give me this crap about it. We're busy. I don't want to hear that crap. I walk into your store at 6 o'clock at night and you're a supermarket. I have no right saying you need to have the sandwich run away right away. You should be ready to go. It's 6 o'clock at night. I mean, sure, you can have a sandwich at dinner time, but it doesn't matter. It's not a lunch requirement I'm okay with that I find that acceptable but at lunchtime I don't want to hear about I'm not a sandwich shop you're a damn sandwich shop now and you better be ready 
I made them ready because I don't play that games. You know, you got to guard your money, folks, and you got to be smart about it because if you don't, you got plenty of people out there that don't mind taking it. And they'll take it not just because they're greedy or just because they're, they're unethical. They'll take it just because you're not really looking. Maybe sometimes they're not really looking either. The store explanation they gave me, though, was crappy. So I'm glad they changed their practices, but the explanation, in my my opinion, is sucked because it never really explained why you're doing this other than, yeah, we have an exclusive contract with this big meat place, so we want to push it. That's great. No problem with that. I understand that. I respect that. But don't trick me into the meat, okay? I need to have a consent order here, buddy. Otherwise, I don't want to hear that nonsense. And they agreed with me in the end because it definitely looks bad. You know, I probably saved a lot of people money too. Of course, they're never going to know because, you know, you do it in the privacy of these things. But hey, I wish they would know and give me some sandwiches for free for my efforts. That would have been nice. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it was it was a fun thing to do because it's a good principle and a good way to teach my kids about, you know, being a consumer, being a wise consumer. You know, taking taking the fight to the people there without having to be rude, you know, or impolite. And, of course, making a, making a sound argument because that's what you want to do. Uh, the biggest example is restaurants. You know, I tell, I tell waiters and waitresses all the time, I know they don't pay you a lot. But, first of all, that is not my problem. I didn't ask you to take this job. Second of all, I know that it's a lot of work and you're on your feet a lot. And I respect that. And I'm happy to give you a tip. I'm happy to give you a generous tip, but I'm not going to just give it to you at the principle of you working really hard if I'm not getting good service. I told my sons the same this as well, especially when I'm bringing both of my sons to a restaurant. That's a bit of a chore. You know, they're particular. They could be noisy. You know what I mean? They're certainly going to be messy. So I'm expecting the waiter or waitress, I'm expecting them to give some extra effort because I got extra work here. And if I don't have my wife with me, it's really extra work. And I'm going to give you a, a, a tip that's going to be according to that. And unfortunately, a lot of them have stepped up to that. But the ones that haven't, I'm not willing to give them a great tip. Because I got two kids over here trying to have dinner, running all this stuff all over the place. And you're barely coming over here and shoving stuff out of it and running to the next table. I, I know they're all sympathetic about people who work. I work too, folks, okay? Worked all my life. But in the end... You got to be sympathetic to your own service that you get. You have to sympathetic to your own money and not just to some political principle. Because in the end, it doesn't make any sense to give somebody extra money and they haven't given really done a great job. You know? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work on your feet. I got all that. Okay? But it's not cancer research. Okay? It's it's grabbing some food from a kitchen and bringing it to your table and filling up your drinks a couple of times. All right? So if you can't do that, on a regular basis, I mean, what am I supposed to do here? I've never had to write a letter about it at all, but I've, I've had a few complaints about it over the years. And, and thankfully, some of the places we go on a more regular basis, things are much better because they've said something about, hey, I know these people probably come and go on this kind of a job. I got all that. But and again, your customers are going to come and go too if the service stinks. So, and I'm sure this is anywhere in the world. I don't care if you're in Egypt right now or New Zealand or whatever. You can't be fond of people not doing their best, but they're expecting you to put extra money out. I don't know about other countries and how they pay these folks, but I know here in America, they don't get a whole lot. So, I like to be 
I like to be generous and like to be sympathetic when I really fear it's warranted. I've had a few that's crossed the line, not too happy about it. Sometimes my kids are like, I like that person anyway. I'm like, okay. But they're boys. You know, they see a pretty girl and um, I'm stuck giving them a big tip. <laughs> that's what happens when you have sons instead of, instead of daughters. The daughters are probably saying, oh, no, that's not working out. But hey, that's, that's the kind of society we have sometimes. Well, folks, I hope you I hope you enjoyed that, having a writing to affect the change. I really liked it. It's fun to tell some of those stories and, and see how writing can be in a, in a different manner. It doesn't always have to be, you know, beginning, middle, end. It doesn't always have to be some inquisitive or, or, or powerful poem. You know, it could be a letter. It could be a, a literary letter or it could just simply be a letter of a commercial stance or it could be a letter of a social value or it could be a letter of simply... A humanitarian, listen, what you're doing is wrong and here's why you need to change this because it's really unacceptable. This is the things we can do, not only as writers, but just as general citizens. And our writing can have have a difference and have a change. Remember, it doesn't have to have a world effect. It could just be in your community. Hell, it can be in your household. I've known wives that wrote letters to their husband because they didn't think they were really listening to them. And that letter gave them enough of a of a shot in the head to say, yo, you need to wake up and, and understand, you know, that the relationship needs some mending before it gets any worse. I've heard of this sort of thing before. I'm certainly not against it. Whatever you got to do, you can use writing in a, in a positive effect, you know, to get the kind of change that you, you should have so we can all have a, a much more richer and, and joyful life. Folks, I wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and, and of course, a, a wonderful holiday season. And we'll be running the show again on the, uh, I believe it's the 20, uh, 27th. We'll have a, a metal show. Very interesting about, about bands that retire or unretire. I just heard today, folks, that the Scorpions are going to release an album in 2020 after they went on a two-year world tour and said, we're too old and we're going to retire. Does this mean they're going to do another tour after the album? Are they going to do a mini tour? Are they too old for touring, but they're not too old for the studio? I don't really know because in these days, releasing an album doesn't mean much anymore. You don't get a lot of money from that. Not that they need it anymore, but again, are they another category of that unretire? I don't know. I only found this out and I didn't mention about it because ironically, I mentioned how they were retired in that show. So how things change. We'll probably have to do something like this again next year. All right, folks, until next time, God bless, strength to be human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com. <laughs>